Good morning. If you have your Bibles, please open them to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians will be in chapter 2 and chapter 3. Of course, Blake can't be here today, so we are going to take a pause in our, in our series in the Gospel of John and, and look at this passage in, in 2 Corinthians, where we are going to see the, the ministry, the gospel ministry of the Apostle Paul, and so sometimes challenging aspects of it. And I trust and pray that it will be fruitful for us as we engage in our various ministries in our, in our lives. Um, so please stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to be reading 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 through chapter 3, verse 6. The Word of God says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So the Apostle Paul was not a superhero. This may seem obvious to, to some of us, but I think it is good to be reminded that Paul was a, a real human who lived in a, in a real context and faced real challenges, real suffering, and even felt real human emotions. And this reality is very apparent in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. In this letter, Paul has written about the unique suffering he faces as an apostle of Christ. And he is even having to defend himself against, at the time, extremely real threats to the credibility of his ministry. And I think we can sometimes put Paul in, in the, the super-Christian category. Granted, he, he is a faithful example for that we should follow, but when we solely view him as some unattainable, righteous man who, who wrote half of the New Testament, 
this, this super, superhero Christian, we can miss some valuable lessons we can gain from looking at the very real ups and downs of his gospel ministry on earth. So in, in this text this morning in 2 Corinthians, I want to do just that, examining, by examining Paul's sometime turbulent ministry to the Corinthian church. And so we're going to look at four aspects that we see in Paul's ministry that will hopefully, that I, I pray, will encourage us in our various gospel ministries. So we'll break this down in, in four points. First is Paul's burden in ministry. Second point is Paul's triumph in ministry. The third point is Paul's sufficiency for ministry. And lastly, Paul's confidence in ministry. So Paul's burden in ministry, Paul's triumph in ministry, Paul's sufficiency for ministry, and Paul's confidence in ministry. So first, Paul's burden in ministry. So I know we're, we're, we're kind of parachuting just in the middle of this letter. So for some context, we need to know that in this portion of the letter, Paul has been defending the, the authenticity, the, the legitimacy of his ministry, of his apostolic ministry, from opponents that are from within the Corinthian church. And so from the second half of chapter 1 and the first five verses of chapter 2, Paul has been defending his travel plans and defending his, his decision for not visiting the Corinthians. In verse 12 of chapter 2, we see Paul moves to his present ministry and his recent experience in Troas. And notice Paul says he, he came to Troas to preach the gospel, the gospel of Christ. And we know from the book of Acts that, that Troas was an important port city and a, a strategic ministry outpost with a, a, a thriving church there. And Paul is preaching the gospel there. He, he, he's doing gospel ministry. And it seems he was having success there because in, in verse 13, notice he states, a door was opened for me in the Lord. A door was opened for me in the Lord. This phrase means that not only did Paul have opportunity to preach the gospel in Troas, but the Lord was also working through his gospel preaching. In other words, people were, were, were coming to faith. Disciples were were growing in maturity. Real, powerful gospel ministry was occurring. The Lord was moving. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul lives for. But in verse 13, kind of jarringly, Paul states something isn't all right. He says, my spirit was not at rest. My spirit was not at rest. So even in the midst of proclaiming the gospel in Troas, and even in the midst, in a very real sense, of being aligned with the will of God, being in a, a place the Lord had opened doors for him to be at, even there, 
Paul's soul was not at rest. This term denotes Paul actually being in distress. He, he was anxious. Why? Well, the rest of the verse states the reason for Paul's distress is he did not find his brother Titus in Troas. And we look at that and say, okay, that's strange. Um, but we know from later in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 7, verses 6 through 7, the, the reason Paul was so distressed and not finding Titus is that Titus was carrying with him a report on the state of the Corinthian church. So remember Paul's first letter to the Corinthians called them to repentance because of the, some wicked practices in their congregation. So in 1 Corinthians, Paul um, rebuked the Corinthian church for, for a myriad of things, including sexual misbehavior, claims of spiritual authority, suing one another in public courts, if you remember that, and, and even abusing the communion meal or partaking in it in an unworthy manner. And we have to remember, as modern readers, we have to remember this was before the time of mass communication. Right? Titus couldn't just email Paul the Corinthians' response to his rebuke. Paul would have had no idea if the Corinthians had accepted his letter in humble repentance. So Paul was burdened by the state of the Corinthians' souls. And as a result, he was discontent. His spirit was not at rest in Troas because he had a deep concern for the Corinthians' response to his first letter. Paul states that, that he left Troas to go on to, to Macedonia so that he could meet up with Titus. I think it is clear Paul, Paul is writing this to the Corinthians to say, brothers and sisters, see how much I am in turmoil over the state of your soul? I deeply care for you so much so that I left fruitful gospel ministry to learn of the report from your church about your church. In the face of the accusations and threats against his ministry, Paul is saying his genuine care for, his, his love for the Corinthians legitimizes his ministry. It, it gives him credibility amongst the accusations from the false teachers who are trying to discredit him. And a key for you, Christian, is this, that I think we can glean from this text, is that doing faithful gospel ministry, even in the will of God, does not necessarily mean continual peace and contentment. Of course, we, we can't be anxious about the Lord's continual provision in our lives or, or how the Lord is going to, to take care of us. He is. That's the promise of His Word. We can't be anxious about that. But I'm sure we know experientially the burden of gospel ministry. The, the, this, this unrest is not unique to Paul, is it? Genuinely loving and caring for people is hard. And it will lead to agonizing distress at times. Maybe you've been evangelizing with a friend or a family member for years with, with little to no signs of fruit. 
Don't we agonize over the state of that person's soul? Don't we have sleepless nights at times pleading with the Lord, pleading with God to have mercy on them? Like Paul, in those moments, our spirit is not at rest. Or maybe you know a a dear Christian friend who's living in an unrepentant sin. This is sort of the, the situation that Paul is dealing with with the Corinthians. Is there not a distress, a burden in your soul over whether or not that person will will turn from their sin and and trust in Christ and repent. So Christians, sometimes this type of anxious concern is what characterizes faithful gospel ministry. So we shouldn't expect complete peace and complete contentment when when we minister to and genuinely love the people God has placed in our lives. It is hard sometimes restless work. You could call it a holy discontentment. But it is not hopeless work. It's not hopeless. In fact, Paul in the following verses goes on to say that gospel ministry is the glorious means God uses to spread the knowledge of of Christ and His saving work across the world. And friends, that is an endeavor that will never fail. It will not fail. This leads to our our, our second point in the text, Paul's triumph in ministry. Paul's triumph in ministry. So after recounting this anxiety-filled decision to, to leave Troas to go meet Titus, Paul abruptly turns to thanksgiving to God in verse 14. And I find this, this sort of seems odd, kind of out of place. Why thank God now if you're, if you're just claiming you were in distress? Well, Paul gives an extended metaphor here that tells of his success or, or the triumph of his ministry in Christ that leads to his praise of the Lord. So read with me starting in verse 14, this metaphor. He says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Now there's, there's some debate uh, on what exactly Paul is trying to signify in this metaphor. He doesn't just come out and tell us. That would be nice. But, but I don't want to get lost in the weeds here. The, 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 the consensus is that Paul, Paul's use of the term leads us in triumphal procession. That term in verse 14 is a term referring to a Roman military parade. And these, these Roman triumphal processions were, were lavish parades that celebrated significant military victories of the Roman Empire. And so these, these, these parades were huge cultural events. We can see evidence of this in, in history and massive celebrations that everybody went to in the society. It was a, a massive cultural moment. There was no higher honor or accomplishment for a Roman general to, than to be a 
a victorious leader in one of these triumphal processions. So putting this, this first part of the word picture together, Paul is saying that God in Christ is the ultimate victor who leads the Apostle Paul like, like a victorious Roman general in triumphal procession wherever his gospel ministry, wherever he is proclaiming this gospel, wherever he goes. And I think in the context of the letter, we can be confident that, that Paul's opponents in Corinth, who, who he's writing this letter combating, they would have raised questions to the Corinthians about Paul's authority, about his legitimacy. And they might have claimed Paul didn't know what he was doing. Perhaps they would have questioned why Paul seemingly just wanders from church to church and with no rhyme or reason. His ministry sometimes seemed aimless to the world's eyes. But Paul is saying, no. No matter where I choose to minister, the Lord is leading me. And the Lord is triumphant victor over all creation. He is leading me in a battle that's already won. It is a victory parade. And so, brothers and sisters, if, if our lives are characterized by the same gospel as Paul, and we preach the same message, that, that salvation from the punishment our sins deserve comes through faith in Christ alone, if we preach that message, then we can have the same gratitude and the same confidence that Paul has here. That, that though our ministry endeavors may feel aimless at times, which they do, right? They, they sometimes feel aimless. Like, why are we doing this? Does this work? Though we may see little fruit in this life, we are also led by Christ and triumphant victory, friends. Maybe you've, you've never seen someone come to faith as a result of your evangelism. Or it seems the majority of the people you disciple just aren't growing in maturity. Listen, if, if you are faithfully proclaiming and ministering the gospel, then your ministry, your service to the Lord is not in vain. It is not meaningless. It will never be pointless. The Lord will, in His time and in His way, save and grow His people for His glory. And that is a guaranteed promise. He is leading us in triumphant victory. And we need to believe that as His children. So the second part of, of Paul's metaphor is that he, in his gospel ministry or the fragrance or, and the, the aroma of Christ to the world. So at these Roman military parades, uh, the, the Romans had incense bearers that, who, who wafted fragrant smells over the crowd. I don't think I would enjoy that, but it apparently was nice for the culture at the time. And, and this aroma, this fragrance, Paul is referring to in verses 14 and 15. This is I think he's, he's connecting, or it's the same metaphor. And so notice Paul is saying that his gospel message is, as he states in verse 14, is the knowledge of Christ everywhere. Is the knowledge of Christ everywhere. 
So the idea is, as, as Christ is leading in, in this triumphant parade through the world, Paul's gospel message that he proclaims, it spreads the knowledge of salvation everywhere, like the infants, the, the incense fragrance spread over the crowd of the parade. The point is, the message of the gospel is pervasive. It's, it's inescapable. Just think about when, when your, your wife or mom puts on a sweet-smelling perfume, or maybe you think it's interesting-smelling, um, and it permeates through the whole house. Right? It seems like you can smell it everywhere. And similarly, Paul is proclaiming the knowledge of Christ through the gospel that spreads everywhere. And the point Paul is making is everyone who who comes into contact with this message must respond to the message. Is the gospel aroma pleasing or is it repugnant? Do I cherish Christ or do I hate him? Paul goes on to say in verse 16 that his gospel ministry is to some a smell of death and to others a smell of life. Listen, the gospel is is the dividing line for all humanity, for all of us. To some, the gospel message smells sweet. We delight in it. We we cherish it. we, We share it everywhere we go. We embrace it. We love it. For others, the gospel message is the stench of death. There's a hatred for the message of the gospel. They are repulsed by Jesus and his cross. And Paul goes further and says, not only is the gospel the smell of death for them, but it leads to death. It leads to death. And I think it's clear that eternal death is what Paul has in mind. So listen, there, 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 there's no neutrality when it comes to hearing the gospel. You either cherish and love Christ and are pleasing to God and will one day experience eternal life with Him, or you despise and hate Christ and will one day face eternal torment. And if you're here and you're not trusting in Jesus and the aroma of Christ is the stench of death to you, then you need to turn and give your life to Christ. May this gospel message that that every evil thing you've done, every wicked thing you've done or thought can be forgiven in an instant by believing and trusting in the person and work of Christ. Believe that today, friend. I hope that message becomes the, the sweet aroma of life to you that, that leads to eternal life and paradise with God forever. Believe that today. So in summary of, of, of Paul's metaphor in these verses, 14 through 16, Right, the, the, the metaphor tells of his triumph in ministry, Paul's triumph in ministry. 
which is only possible in Christ, that the Lord is leading him in victory. Paul is not just aimlessly wandering through Rome, but he's proclaiming the gospel message that spreads the knowledge of Jesus everywhere, the message that divides humanity to those gaining eternal life and those being justly punished in eternal death. Brothers and sisters, that is a weighty calling for Paul, for us. So Paul, in the second half of verse 16, asks, read with me, he says, who is sufficient for these things? Who is qualified for this ministry? Who can do it? And I think from the gravity of the previous section, the presumed answer is no one. No one is sufficient. No one is qualified for this ministry. But from the following verses, Paul is saying, actually, he is sufficient. He is qualified through God's grace for this gospel ministry. And this leads to our our third point. Paul's sufficiency for ministry, or Paul's qualification for ministry. In verses 17 through, through uh, verse 3 of chapter 3, so we're going into chapter 3 now, it might get confusing, but verses 17 of chapter 2 through verse 3 of chapter 3, Paul gives two reasons why he is sufficient for his apostolic ministry, why he is qualified. And he says, first, his sincerity, his sincerity, and second, the Spirit's presence in his ministry, the Holy Spirit's presence in his ministry. So look at verse 17. Paul there contrasts himself with his opponents in Corinth who are challenging him by stating they are peddlers of God's word. Another way to say this is these teachers are only teaching God's word for financial gain. I'm sure you, you've encountered some of these in your life. They still exist. They're, 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 they're hucksters or, or charlatans. And Paul is saying, unlike them, he is a man of sincerity, a man with honest motives, meaning he isn't teaching for financial profit. Paul is not exploiting the Corinthians for personal gain. In fact, he does the opposite. And in the New Testament, Paul sometimes works other jobs, so he, he's not a financial burden on the congregation he is serving. Instead of being a peddler of God's word, Paul says at the end of verse 17, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak Christ. Paul states that his ministry is actually commissioned by God, or he has been sent by God. And his actions and his teachings are before the sight of God. That's an important phrase. It, it denotes Paul's proper fear of the Lord. Paul is saying, look, I have a sincere ministry. I have honest motives because everything I say and everything I do, I do it honestly before the Lord under God's righteous judgment. And to notice Paul states his words that he speaks are in Christ. In other words, Paul is defending his, his apostolic ministry that 
he speaks the very word of God in Christ. So Paul is saying he, he is sufficient for the weighty task of his apostolic ministry because he has genuinely sincere motives, a, a genuinely sincere calling from God to him. He didn't make it up. Now in verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul asks two rhetorical questions regarding self-commendation and, and letters of recommendation. I think that, that this verse applies to the, to the previous topic of Paul's sufficiency for his ministry. What Paul is doing here is bringing to the Corinthians' attention by these rhetorical questions that Paul doesn't need any letter of recommendation to authenticate, to legitimize his ministry. So it's likely that Paul's opponents in Corinth had good resumes, so to speak. They had letters that, that recommended the, the character and quality of their ministry to the Corinthian church to help legitimize their ministry. You know, this is pretty similar to the process I went through in getting this pastoral position. You guys had a search committee with some very fine people, very nice people. Um, and I had a resume with very little experience, but I also had references on there, men that, I, that, that could attest to my character, to my competency for ministry, and I wanted them to attest to my character. I wanted them to say, yeah, Ryan's great, more than that. Um, and of course, it worked out, right? I'm here. And what Paul is saying is he doesn't need a letter of recommendation to attest to his ministry. That wouldn't have worked out for me. But the reason why is in verse 2 and 3. Read verses 2 and 3 with me. He says, You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of of human hearts. Paul is saying he doesn't need a, a letter of recommendation because the Corinthians are his recommendation. He's saying, look, Corinthians, at your own lives. You are my letter. More specifically, Paul says, it is the work of the Spirit of the living God in the lives of the Corinthians that attests to Paul's sufficiency for his ministry. The presence of the Spirit. He's saying, look, look at the Spirit among you. The reality and the presence of the work of the Spirit in the, in the lives of the Corinthians is Paul's argument here for his own ministry. Now, I think what Paul is doing here becomes clearer in verse 6 of chapter 3. Notice he, he states that the Lord has made him sufficient to be a minister of the new covenant, of the new covenant. Paul is here, he, he, he's positioning himself in salvation history with, with the sending of the Spirit as the promise or a promise of the new covenant. A promise that we see, and, he, and he's saying that the, the promise is being fulfilled. That promise is happening in Corinth. And the point is, Paul is saying, unlike the old covenant, now the Spirit gives life to God's people. 
The Spirit transforms the believer's heart to, to love and obey the law of God. The law of God is now written on the believer's heart, as Jeremiah 31 prophesied. The implication is we can now, the Corinthians can now obey, joyfully obey God's law. Paul's point is to say that the reality, the reality that the Spirit has come in the lives of the Corinthians and that they now can delight in and, and obey God's law through the, the power of the Spirit, that reality is the evidence that his ministry is legitimate, that he is sufficient for ministry, that he's qualified for this ministry. And quickly, I just want to point out that what, what Paul deems as his, his qualification or his sufficiency for ministry really has nothing to do with earthly gifting or earthly influence. And so when we analyze successful ministries, even our ministries here at EF, then I think a principle we should apply from this text is that there's no earthly metric there's no earthly formula that, that can gauge a successful ministry. There's just not. It's not the number of attenders or the influence in the community that makes a successful ministry. Even those, the, those can be good things. We don't reject those things. Rather, we should ask, is the ministry sincere? Honoring God, in other words. Are we unashamedly preaching the true word of God and the fear of the Lord and the sight of the Lord is the spirit moving in the ministry. And the spirit moving is not some sort of mystical, um, charismatic experience. Rather, are, are people being transformed? Are people killing sin and, and turning towards Christ and joyfully obeying his law through our ministries? That is how the Spirit moves, friends. And this is the criteria of Paul's gospel ministry. And although this may appear less impressive to the world at times, Paul is saying this is how we measure true gospel ministry. On a more personal level, how many times have you maybe felt insufficient for the task God has called you to? Again, maybe it's evangelism, and you just don't think you have all the right answers. You just don't think you're smart enough to answer the skeptic's questions. You become paralyzed with fear. This is a common experience for the Christian. Or maybe you're, you're counseling someone through a tragedy, and you just you don't think you have any words to say that will benefit in the moment. You don't think you have any value to bring, so you, you run. Remember, saint, it is not your natural ability or your intellect alone that will minister to someone. A sincere conviction and dependency on God and the work of His Holy Spirit in you is what you need to make a drastic, lasting impact for the kingdom of God. I think that should embolden our ministries, that we're dependent on God. That is good news. So Paul undoubtedly wants to make sure the Corinthians know that, that 
he's qualified for his apostolic ministry. That's, the, that's the, I think, the main point of this passage. But he also wants to make sure to convey that his sufficiency, as we just said, doesn't come from himself. His qualification doesn't come from himself, which leads to our final point, which really is the conclusion. But Paul's confidence in ministry. Paul's confidence in ministry. In verses 4 and 5 of chapter 3, Paul proclaims to the Corinthians that his sufficiency for ministry comes from God. Read with me in verse 5. He says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Paul is leaving no doubt here that, that any competency he has in ministry, any sufficiency, sufficiency he has from ministry is solely from God alone. This is how he can speak so boldly in this letter about the defense of his own ministry. Because he isn't arrogant or prideful. And there's a way you could read this and be like, wow, Paul, you really think a lot of yourself. That's not what's happening. For Paul, it is only because of God and nothing from himself that his ministry is legitimate. Paul's sufficiency for ministry only comes from God. He is not trusting in his own power. He is not trusting in his own wisdom. He's not trusting in his own intellect. There is nothing Paul could do in himself to cause people to be transformed by the Spirit and to obey and love God. That's precisely how he knows his ministry is from God. You see, recognizing God's sovereignty over our giftings, over our, our various callings, and even over the spiritual fruit in our lives, recognizing God's sovereignty over those things, that type of recognition leads to God-glorifying confidence. Confidence in our ministries. And we can proclaim with Paul in verse 4, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Such is the confidence that we have. Our sufficiency doesn't come from us. It comes from God. So Christian, we like Paul have, have nothing to offer in ourselves that can transform sinners into new creations. We just don't. We need God to act. No amount of charisma, no, no intellectual prowess, no, no amount of empathetic listening without God's power and grace can save anybody or transform anybody. And all of those things I just listed, those are good things. We should cultivate those gifts. And God uses them for his purposes and for his glory. But our confidence can never lie in those gifts. Our confidence can never lie in our human abilities. But in the sovereign power of God who takes dead hearts and makes them alive who through the power of his spirit causes sinners to, to detest their sin and to instead love and pursue righteousness. Only God can do that. And that is where our confidence must lie. So in closing, church, in our various ministries, and I'm not just talking about our formal ministries, I'm talking about the ministries you have as, as a member of the body of Christ, taking lunch to your neighbor, getting coffee 
with a friend. All of, all, in all of these areas, these are your, your, the way you are serving the Lord, the way you are ministering to people. And in our various ministries, the various places we serve the Lord as Christians, as a church, when we face distress, like Paul here, when we face challenges, when we, when we, when we even experience great life-changing success, let us have confidence in our God above anything else who, like with Paul before us, leads us in triumph as we proclaim his gospel to the lost world. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your word and the truth contained in it. Lord, we thank you for this gospel that saved each of us who are trusting in you. That you have taken our dead, dead hearts and, and brought them to life. That you have transformed us to, to detest our sin and to obey your law. Thank you for doing this in our lives. And we do pray that our lives, our ministries, our service to you would be characterized by a confidence in you and a trust in you. And not to trust and fear because of our, our lack of qualification or, or our lack of ability that we think we have. But Lord, help us trust you. Help us be bold with the gospel. Help us share the gospel. Cause us to minister the gospel to each other and to the people that you bring into our lives so that we too with Paul can, can be part of this triumphant procession of your kingdom through the world. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So I invite you to, to stand and respond in song as we Sing to this great God who has saved us, who has transformed us, and who is leading us.